The NRA holds its convention in Texas following the mass school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Democrats and independents, meanwhile, push for common sense gun reform while Republicans push for more guns. The Georgia probe into Trump extorting Brad Raffensperger to find more votes accelerates. And we are joined by journalist Alex Michelson of Fox 11 LA as our guest on this podcast on Memorial Day to talk about the state of journalism with all these truly horrific and difficult breaking news stories that are taking place. Ben, Brett and Jordy joining you on Memorial Day want to first and foremost say that on this Memorial Day, we think about all of those who have sacrificed for our country, all of the troops who have given their life for this country. Um, many people who listen to Midas Touch know our history, but if you're a new listener, um, both of our grandparents were in various capacities in World War II. Um, our grandpa on our mom's side, Murray, was a tail gunner uh, in a B-29 uh, fighter jet uh, fighter airplane, the Super Fortress. And then um, on our dad's side, um, Harold uh, was a doctor in the military, a psychiatrist uh, who practiced and focused on mental health of our troops. And so it's an issue that's near and dear to our hearts. Brett and Jordy, how are you doing today? You know, I'm doing as, as best as I can trying to enjoy this Memorial Day weekend and trying to really think about what this what this Memorial Day means. And I think really, I think what we could all do to really truly celebrate Memorial Day weekend, aside from the barbecues and the seeing family and, and all that sorts of stuff, which is which is great, is just make sure that we are dedicating ourselves every day to doing what we can to really protect the democracy that all these fallen soldiers have made this ultimate sacrifice for. Um, I think there's, you know, I mean, they gave their lives for the American experiment. And so I know every day we here at Midas Touch are committed to preserving this American experiment and, and fighting for truly what it means. And I know that all of our listeners here are as well. Exactly. And I would just reemphasize that point, Brad. I just want our listeners to ask themselves, hey, what have you done today, this week, in the last couple of days to push democracy forward, to make sure that this country is going to be better off when you leave it? And when you came here, you know, we have a number of uh, Supreme Court rulings that are likely going to be issued in the next two or three weeks, you know, all of which are going to have some disastrous consequences. On the one hand, we have the Roe v. Wade uh, overturning draft decision, which is circulated, which I think there's beyond any doubt that it's going to be the final opinion of the court. They may change a few sentences here or there. I've predicted on the Legal AF podcast that they may get rid of that one sentence that talks about the 14th century English jurist who wanted to burn women at who burn women at the stake. But unbelievable. Uh, probably not the best optics there. Yeah. But other than that, I think the decision is likely going to look the same and overturned. Roe v. Wade. And on the other hand, you actually have a decision as well that is focused on the Second Amendment, um, expanding this personal right that was found for the very first time in this Heller decision in 2008, and basically finding that the Second Amendment is an unfettered right with no regulations permitted whatsoever. And that began with Scalia in 2008. And that Supreme Court ruling is going to drop 
right on the heels of Uvalde. And so I expect that ruling to come out in the next two or three weeks. And so we definitely know what's at stake. And you see how stark these issues are with the fact that the NRA and the GQP, the Republicans, this fascist political party um, held a convention. It's really an NRA GOP convention. It's not really just an NRA convention. They both it's all of the Republican leaders. And you're right. It's a merger. You know, and that was in Houston, Texas, which is just three and a half, four hours uh, west of or east of Uvalde is where uh, is, is where Houston is. And you have these people, you know, whether it's Trump. I mean, did you see Trump's speech where he played those like the bells that would ring every time a name would it, it was the most darkest, grimmest thing ever. And then he started dancing to YMCA. I mean, he's on what? stage dancing. He was on stage dancing. It's really the most ghoulish, uh, most horrifying image that I've ever seen. I don't understand how anybody like as a human being, as a human being, put politics aside for a second. I don't understand how you could look at that, how you can look at that man purposely mispronouncing the names of the victims of a shooting, the children who died in a shooting, and then doing a little dance after it with these weird gongs and sound effects. And you go, oh, yeah, that's my guy. That's who I support here. I, mm. I truly just don't understand the humanity behind it. And I guess there just is no humanity behind it. I mean, let's put it in perspective. There were two of the deadliest mass shootings that we've ever seen, two horrific attacks on Americans, including 19 children slain, slaughtered in an elementary school. And the NRA threw a party afterwards. They threw a party and Trump danced. That's the sequence of events that we saw. And the people, the politicians in Texas went and even Greg Abbott, he got a lot of credit from the media too. Greg Abbott, he's not speaking. Greg Abbott's not going to be speaking at the NRA event. He recorded a video that they played at the NRA event and everybody gave him all this credit. Oh, he backed out. He backed out. You had Ted Cruz speaking there. You had all these other Republican politicians speaking there because the NRA is an arm of the Republican Party. Like you said, Ben, it is an arm of the Republican Party and they are not willing to compromise one iota to implement common sense gun reforms that would actually help solve this problem because they would rather have their guns because it makes them feel good about their manhood or whatever it is than save the lives of kids. I mean, that's frankly it at the end of the day. If there's any silver lining from this NRA event, it was that the protest being held outside looked to be actually much bigger than the crowd in the auditorium for this NRA convention. So if we could just pull up those two side-by-side photos, I think our audience will really appreciate that. Pulling that up now, I recommend everyone look at this. And I hope everybody also watches the video. It's not going to play well in, in sound, I don't think, on the podcast. So I'm not going to play it, but I'll play like right. the video clip on the video. But of the moms outside at this protest outside of the NRA event, basically pushing oh. out this NRA guy from the event in one of the most epic situations I've ever seen. And that's the energy that we need really at this point. I mean, I'm sick of giving any of these people quarter. You have a, a rabble rouser NRA guy trying to get in and cause trouble at this protest. And the moms are just like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> get out of here. And that's moms the energy the best, I man. need. Moms are the we best. Have we have the uh, citizens of Uvalde. We have them booing Greg Abbott as he shows up to the memorial in Uvalde saying, do something, let's change something. We're hurting here. The boos are great. I love the boos. Keep the boos going. I love the confrontation that we saw with Ted Cruz in the restaurant. At this point, I don't think any of these people should really have an opportunity to go to dinner in peace if our children aren't allowed to go to school in peace without worry, being worried about being gunned down. So I think you could respectfully protest these people in public. I am all for it. 
personally at this stage in the game. But at the end of the day, booing is great, but you got to get out and vote. Like you got to get out and vote. As Obama said, don't boo, vote. Well, boo, I'm okay with the booing part, but vote as well. And let's get these people out of office. Let's actually get some real change because it doesn't take much to solve this crisis. It really doesn't take much. Just look at every other country in the world. You don't have to take away everybody's guns. You just have to implement common sense procedures that make it so 18-year-olds cannot have access to weapons of war. It's pretty damn simple. Play the clip, if you will, of Jim Acosta speaking to a board member of the NRA and asking the board member, why does an 18 year old need an assault weapon on the AR-15? How how is it that an 18 year old can buy an AR-15 style rifle and have 1600 rounds of ammo with him like we saw in Uvalde? Well, it's he did not have any prior convictions. He didn't have any prior issues that would have kept him from purchasing one. It's my understanding from the news that he uh, purchased it through a firearms dealer. He passed the background check because he didn't have any prior convictions. Right. But should an 18 year old have an AR-15? That's how he bought it. Should an, AR- should an 18 year old have an AR-15? What's he going to do? With I don't it? know. Go should an 18 year old have one in the army? Well, they have military, they the have military training in the army. This 18-year-old in Uvalde did not have military training. He turned 18 and he went out and bought an AR-15. You know, and I think that silence of that NRA board member is really telling. There really is no answer to that question. And whether we're talking about, you know, driving driver's license or regulations of um, you know, alcohol or, you know, people give all of these different examples, but to me, it's just a real, it's just far more basic than that. Even it's just (laughs) at the age of 18, why do you need an assault weapon? And then, you know, well, they always go to this. Well, you know, in the military, 18, well, this isn't the military. This isn't the military. This is an 18 year old. Um, and then what we learn more and more too, is this company called Daniel Defense. This is the uh, manufacturer or the seller of the uh, gun. This Daniel Defense sold the guns in both the Vegas mass shooting and in Uvalde. They're the ones doing advertisements that show toddlers holding assault weapons. Let's, and giving- let's pull this up, Ben, because I want everybody to look at this image right now of this little child with one of their weapons in an advertisement. And now let's think about the way that we think about advertisements from the 50s of kids smoking cigarettes. We all know those old advertisements of kids with cigarettes in their hands and stuff like that. We're appalled appalled by that and rightfully so but we're allowed to have gun manufacturers put ads with children <laughs> holding ar-15s or babies laying next to ar-15s and that's an acceptable form of advertising in 2022 it's batshit well here's the thing too so daniel defense was pushing those ads showing toddlers holding weapons and also um, what, what's that video game to Call of Duty? They were also kind of linking it to like video games and Call of Duty. They were pushing ads like that um, when this shooter bought his weapon. And I think the shooter bought about three to five thousand dollars worth of weapons and, and ammunition, AR-15 and ammunition. And he did it based on the fact that Daniel Defense allows you not to even have any credit. So they have a financing plan 
where you're able to buy the assault weapon without actually even having the money and have a payment plan, even if you don't even qualify for the credit card. I mean, just think about that. that Disgusting. That, and that's how this individual got the weapon. So then you basically hear people like Ted Cruz and others go, well, if the Democrats plan was in place, it still wouldn't have prevented bad people from doing bad things. Bullshit. If the Democrat plan was in place and 18 year olds weren't allowed to have assault weapons, this 18 year old wouldn't have the assault weapon. And that brings me to The New York Times, a front cover of the Sunday Review, which goes through all of the shootings. And it says authorities said the gunman was able to obtain the weapons legally. Authorities said the gunman was able to obtain the weapon legally. Authorities said the gunman was able to obtain illegally legally. And it goes through Uvalde, Buffalo, Boulder, Dayton, Virginia Beach, Pittsburgh. And it, and it goes on and on and on. And so the question is, is we need to make sure that these individuals don't get the guns Legally. And here's the thing. Here's my position on the Second Amendment. If you want to have a handgun for self-defense, I'm I'm fine with that. If you want to have a hunting rifle, like an actual hunting rifle, because you go hunting and you can show that you're a hunter. I mean, that's fine. Like, go go hunting. I'm I'm totally fine with that. Um, There's just no reason why you would need a weapon. That's sole purpose is designed to to murder as many people as possible, as you said, Brett, a weapon of war. What's next? I mean, if, if you if you take this to the next logical conclusion, I mean, I wonder if I ask the NRA board member, so can I get a tank? Can I just drive around in a, in a tank or an Apache helicopter, you know, that has, you know, you know or, or an F whatever, an F-14, F-15, no, an F-15 plane? Like, wh- where does it stop? So it's just common sense stuff. Nobody wants to take people's guns away. And it's the same common sense procedures that we've taken throughout history with so many different things. I mean, in 1967, a woman named Jane Mansfield was killed when her car ran under the rear end of a tractor trailer. Since then, we had to have a bar at the rear to keep cars from going over them. In 1982, seven people died when Tylenol package was tampered with. Since then, we have those bottles. Everyone knows the bottles that are hard to open now. Those are now a requirement. In 1995, we saw bombing with a certain kind of fertilizer. Um, We've now imposed severe restrictions on that fertilizer. In 1988, the federal government banned metal tipped lawn darts because a single child died from a metal tipped lawn dart. It's like we could implement simple changes to gun violence and solve the problem, but we have a party that refuses to do anything anything, even the most simple things. And this is a very new thing in American history, Ben, like you were talking about Scalia before. There was never ever in American history, the idea that people had an unfettered right to own any kind of weapon and do anything they wanted with them ad nauseum. That was, that's never been a thing. And the NRA has pushed this myth that people should have this unregulated access to weapons of war, no matter what age you are, no matter what your history is, no matter what the circumstances are without having to get a license, without having to get registered, without having to get anything. And they can't articulate why, though, like, well, we need it for self-defense. Well, there's a lot of other guns for self-defense. You just don't need the assault weapon. They they, they haven't ever really articulated why do you need an AR-15? It's not for hunting. It's purely to kill as many people as possible. And then if there is an AR-15, why wouldn't you know? And if you wanted to have it out, why wouldn't you want 
a common sense licensing process. Like if you were the owner of one, you, you know, the same way that you would want, you know, the right kind of license. Like if you were a truck driver, you know, you wouldn't want just anybody being able to drive a truck. Like you got to be appropriately licensed for it. No doubt about it. And, and let me just say, it's not Democrats who, you know, the Republicans like to say, oh, look how woke and far left the Democrats have gone on this issue. It's not the Democrats who've gone far left on this issue. It's the right wing that has gone so far right on this issue that you're willing to put these mass murdering weapons in the hands of 18 year olds who could then go and shoot up schools. And let me just play this one clip before we go to Alex Michelson. This is Justice Warren Burger, a conservative justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, he was actually the chief justice on the Supreme Court, and he completely annihilates the Republican Party's Second Amendment, what he calls a fraud perpetrated by the Republican Party. Remember, this is a Republican conservative justice in 1991 speaking about the Second Amendment. If I were writing the Bill of Rights now, there wouldn't be any such thing as the Second Amendment. Which says? That, uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the defense of the state, the people's rights to bear arms. This has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat the word fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. Now just look at those words. There are only three lines to that amendment. A well-regulated militia. If the militia, which was going to be the state army, was going to be well-regulated, why shouldn't 16 and 17 and 18 or any other age persons be regulated in the use of arms the way an automobile is regulated? That's once again, the former chief justice the greatest, of the Supreme it, Court, it's a really conservative the, Republican. It's really it's the greatest. common sense. It's just common sense. Well, it's really the greatest point, what he says there, too, because even if you don't read that to basically say that the right to bear arms solely relates to a well-regulated militia. What his point is, why, why would the militia need to be well-regulated, but not the individual? That makes no sense. So the actual army needs to have regulation, but the individual should yeah. have no regulation. Like that's the logic there that makes that even so, such a brilliant, such a brilliant point. And how do right. you argue with that? Individual, no regulation, militias, actual armies, make sure that's well-regulated. Makes no sense whatsoever. And he nailed it. And that was what a Republican used to be. That's what conservatives used to be, that position. These people have have totally manipulated what it means to be uh, conservative and conservative isn't what conservative used to be. So with that said, let's bring in Alex Michelson from Fox 11 LA, friend of Midas Touch podcast. Alex has been with us from the beginning. We've we've always uh, we've been on Alex's show. Alex has been on our show. Um, let's bring in Alex Michelson. We are joined by Alex Michelson from Fox 11 LA, friend of the pod, friend of Midas. Ooh, how the Alex. tables have turned. <laughs> how the tables have turned. Dude, Alex. I'm so proud. It's like my boys have blossomed. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, Alex. And you've been there from, you know, really day one when we didn't even have that many followers and supporters, you were like one of our first supporters and you said, hey, you know, you're you're on to something. And and what I really think it is, too, as I've kind of, you know, got to know you as well, it really is just delivering the truth. No BS mm -hmm. and just and just kind of being relentless in the pursuit of of just what's real. And I think that's what 
the journalistic work that you do embodies. And, and we try to do that as well. Well, what you guys do is so important uh, to be able to have a conversation, to meet people where they are, uh, to find creative ways to get people into the system and into the tent that may not be there um, and to bring up, you know, real shit. <laughs> so I, I, I appreciate uh, the invite. It's it's great to be on with you guys and um, I'm proud of what you've created. It's it's pretty great. incredible to see. Thanks, Alex. And one of the things that I've noticed recently, and I want to get your take on it, um, while I think the big kind of mainstream media networks have in many ways failed us and turned this into kind of a boxing match of, you know, who's who's up or down in the day without focusing truly on what the issues are, like local news, like the kind of news that meets politicians the way you do, you know, at Fox 11, the way we see politicians try to hold people like Madison Cawthorn accountable in North Carolina. Really, to me, the mantle of kind of journalistic integrity has fallen on, you know, journalists who are focused, you know, interstate as opposed to kind of the national media. Are you seeing that or, or, or what do you think about that? Well, the, the polls all show that, that the most trusted place for news these days is local news. I mean, mm -hmm. because as a local news reporter, you're on the ground every day, you're living in the community, you know these people, these are people you see at the grocery store, these are people who your kids are going to the same school, you have an investment in the place. It's not just about theatrics. You know, so often when there's a big national news story, um, national reporters will parachute in for a few days try to sort of suck the life out of a community, trying to go to victims of a crime or something like that and try. And there's this like almost bidding war between the networks of who can, you know, create the most fear porn <laughs> process and get somebody to cry on camera and all the rest of it without a lot of empathy for the community because it's not their community and they're gone in a few days. Whereas if you're a local news reporter, that's somebody you know. Uh, or somebody you've known before, or you're going to deal with, or you're going to cover on the one-year anniversary. There, there's a different interaction between things. And, and in terms of, of politics, I mean, I think, unfortunately, the incentive structure right now for so much of cable news is based off of partisanship and conflict. But the incentive structure for local news is based off of building trust in the community. Um, and it is not a place that a lot of people want to turn to for super partisan information, because ultimately it's about what matters in their community. Like, for example, during the coronavirus, we saw this more than, than ever uh, when, you know, the information you needed in terms of is your school going to be open or not? What is the correct process uh, that you need to go for? What are exactly your local rules? You know, all of the decisions of government, especially local government, who had huge power in all of that, directly impacted people's lives. And they didn't necessarily need, especially at the beginning, partisan spin all that. They just needed the information uh, and a place that can filter it in a way that made it make sense uh, for people. Um, so there's tremendous uh, value in that. I, I just hope going forward, that we can find a way to invest in that more as a society, find a way to um, maybe even subsidize some of that um, because as the, the, the profit system changes, you know, local news could use some help. I mean, a big part of Build Back Better, um, there was actually, you know, a giant chunk of change that was supposed to go towards local newsrooms. 
um, that was going to help places, not necessarily places like Los Angeles, which has a huge market, but in, in the middle of the country where a lot of these local newsrooms have died. And because of, you know, your favorites, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, um, <laughs> one of the many aspects of Build Back Better that didn't happen um, is that. You know, and at the same time, while we don't see that with Build Back Better, what we do see under Trump's PPP program, for example, is groups like Daniel Defense getting millions and millions of dollars so that they could get their weapons in the hands of shooters like the one in Uvalde, which is just sickening. Were you able to watch this NRA convention or see see any of those clips kind of coming out of it? And, and, and what's your view about, you know, basically the NRA, you know, holding a party um, within a few days after, um, you know, one of the most tragic mass shootings in the history of this country? Well, President Trump still has the dance moves. Uh, I guess that was one of the, the takeaways. I mean, it, it is uh, uh, quite uh, stunning um, the way that a lot of Republicans seem to want to have it both ways on this. Uh, Greg Abbott, I'm, I'm not going to appear, but I'm going to do a virtual thing. Um, you know, over the weekend, I saw on Meet the Press, Chuck Todd invited all 48 Repu Republicans in the Senate to talk on gun control and talk about ways forward on potential compromises and not a single one of them said yes. Um, so clearly they're uncomfortable with this conversation. Some of them, you know, are happy to go all in like a, like a Ted Cruz on this. And, and, uh, and, and it's interesting that, that Donald Trump um, seems to be even more pro second amendment now than he used to be um, realizing that there's a base there and you see gun sales going up in the country. Um, every time there's a mass shooting, um, they are able to market it successfully to increase their own bottom line. Um, so in reality, all of these mass shootings are good for business for the NRA and good for business for gun manufacturers, which are kind of one and the same. Uh, and, you know, that itself is is pretty sickening. I mean, it, it is uh, so frustrating, I think, for so many people in this country, this sense of just complete political paralysis on, on this issue. One moment for me that was a real wake up um, was I had covered so many different mass shootings, especially when I was at ABC. I think I went to seven states covering mass shootings. And in every community I would go to, they would say, couldn't believe that it would happen in my hometown. Couldn't believe it would happen in my hometown. You see it on the news, you think it's somebody else's problem until it happens here. And I remember in 2018, it happened in my hometown, <laughs> in borderline, uh, the borderline shooting, which is in Thousand Oaks, which is one town over from my hometown of Agora Hills. And it's a place that I used to go to in high school and, and I knew the people there. And I went to cover that and they said, I couldn't believe it would happen in my hometown. And that time it, it, was, it was my hometown. And it makes you realize that, you know, people wanna act like this is somebody else's problem or it's a theoretical thing until one day it happens in your hometown or it happens to your kid. Um, and I don't understand why after we've seen this problem over and over and over again, there isn't more of an acknowledgement of that. Or even frankly, um, if Republicans keep saying that the problem is mental health, why don't the Democrats call what may be a bluff and say, okay, let's not even do a gun bill. Let's do a massive mental health bill. Let's increase counseling in this country and make it more affordable for people who don't have access to it. Let's work on some of these, you know, major mental health challenges that we've had. Let's do it and put it up on the floor and vote, make them vote on it over and over again. 
um, if they say that mental health's the the issue, then then what's the solution on mental health? Let's do something on that. Um, and it's frustrating, I think, for a lot of people to see, you know, the complete just sort of putting your hands up, and and the acknowledgement. I think that so many people feel like this is just going to happen again, and it's going to happen again soon. I mean, you know, we're, right. we're that's the that's the thing. It seems like every week um, this is happening. And in terms of what the people want, you know, there's such this incongruity between what the people want, number one, and this political paralysis that you speak of. I mean, I think it's 75 percent of Americans want uh, reform in this area, you know, and want common sense gun control. Um, And then you think about another area where there's, you know, this uh, complete incongruity as well. When we talk about overturning Roe v. Wade with 65, 70% of Americans, you know, support the right of, of, a, of a woman and a childbearing person to choose. Yet we've had the Republicans fighting consistently to overturn Roe v. Wade. And look, they finally got it. And it's been like, you know, w- once they got what they want, I don't see them celebrating. You know, I don't see them out there. You know, it's it's just a strange thing that that's what they fought for is to hurt people like that. And I know you've been very outspoken on uh, this draft decision uh, over well, time. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting to see the contrast on those two issues. Right. Uh, because they think that guns is a political winner, especially in Republican primaries. Because if you look at Republican primary ads around the country, it's like, who can shoot something faster, right? I got a gun. I got a bigger gun. I got 15 kids and all of them are holding a gun, <laughs> right? Every single one of them. My, my kid in the womb is getting a gun as a birth present is like the Republican strategy right now for primaries because they realize that the more pro Second Amendment you can be, they see that as, as just a political winner. And clearly they're reading the polls on the abortion issue, and they don't necessarily think that's a political winner. I mean, Mitch McConnell literally said when that draft opinion came out to his people as a political strategy, don't talk about the ruling, talk about the leak. (laughs) That was a coordinated thing to not acknowledge that they had accomplished a goal that the party had been working for in a coordinated way for over 50 years. I mean, Mitch McConnell cares about one thing, really, which is holding on to power. But the two things that he's used that power for more than any other issues are tax cuts and getting conservatives on the court. That's what he really cares about. He basically admitted in the the new This Will Not Pass book that he used Donald Trump as a vessel to get those two things. And then once he was done with him on January 6th, you know, the Democrats will take care of that son of a bitch because he didn't want anything to do with him. He had used him and abused him and he was done with him. So uh, now Republicans get it. They get it. I mean, Mitch McConnell, uh, I mean, didn't give Merrick Garland a hearing over this. He changed the rules of the Senate over this. He got Amy Coney Barrett in with like a day left before the election in order to do this. This was the goal. This is the most important thing. And they finally get it. And the focus is on the leak, (laughs) not even an acknowledgement like this is an important policy goal. Now, we'll see what happens if and when Roe v. Wade um, is overturned. And it is still possible that it's not. It's still possible that the public outcry on this changes it. It's we don't really know 
what led to this leak and who's behind it. It may have been a Republican, by the way. It might not necessarily yeah, have been 100%. behind it. Um, we don't know what's going on internally. We've never seen something like this. But if Roe does go down, um, it, this is a real political issue that Republicans are going to have to deal with. And there clearly are going to be millions of people who do celebrate this, who think that abortion is murder and, and feel like you know, they, they have not been listened to for decades. And this is a great thing. But there clearly are millions, perhaps millions more, based off the current polling, um, that feel the opposite. And that may now realize that politics isn't just theater acting. <laughs> We've gotten so used to faux outrage, you know, the, the, the Ted Cruz school of, you know, I'm angry, that people forget sometimes that this is a real thing. And we're not just watching a House of Cards episode on Netflix, that these decisions impact people's lives in a real way. And what is more personal to a woman than this issue, <laughs> which gets to the funda foundation of who we are as a country. Uh, and I think people maybe, maybe will wake up in a way that they haven't woken up in a long time. And I think it's important when we look at all these issues to look about how, for example, each party uses their power when they have it. And what I mean by that is obviously we have the filibuster system in the federal government, which makes it very difficult for the Democrats to really do much at the end of the day, to be honest. But when you look at a state like California that has Democratic supermajorities, there's truly no excuse at the end of the day to not get the agenda through. And so when you're looking at a state like California and, and Governor Gavin Newsom, I know you've had Governor Newsom on your show quite a bit. Um, what are the Democratic supermajorities in a state like California doing? when it comes to the abortion issue, when it comes to the gun issue and, and so on? Uh, I will answer that question in a second. But I will also say that Republicans have been better at moving the rules around to get what they want. Because if you look at the Senate itself, the things that Mitch McConnell really cares about, the two things I said, tax cuts and the judiciary, mm -hmm. he doesn't need the filibuster for that. Uh -huh. They've changed the rules because they use reconciliation to get the tax cuts through on 50 votes. And they gutted the filibuster for the Supreme Court. And so, so true. we can get that in 50 votes. So it's great for Republicans to keep the filibuster in place because they get all this that stops from happening, all the stuff that they don't really care about. So but true. the stuff they really do care about, they have changed the rules in order to make happen. Um, all right. So on to uh, California and, and Gavin Newsom. Totally different situation, right? Because the Democrats in California have super majorities in both the Senate and the Assembly, a Democratic governor, every single statewide elected officer is a Democrat. So the Democrats can essentially do whatever they want. Republicans can't stop them. Gavin Newsom, I think, thinks that this is an important issue from a policy perspective. And I also think he thinks it's an important issue from a political perspective as somebody who clearly uh, many of us think has national ambitions, even though he always says that he doesn't. Um, but Democrats are trying to, as clearly as possible, say we're not that, uh, trying to pass funding for women to come to this state uh, if they need to get an abortion from a state that doesn't allow it, um, trying to expand you know, the rights of women in every possible thing that, that, they, that they possibly can. 
Um, and then trying to pass other bills, even on issues like guns. Uh, one of the biggest things that California is trying to pass right now um, is a reaction to the Texas abortion ban, right? So in Texas right now, if you have, uh, if there's a fetal heartbeat detected, somebody can sue somebody who is helping to create an abortion. So uh -huh. far, the Supreme Court didn't condone it, but didn't stop it. So it's this weird sort of in-between where they haven't technically ruled on it. So California said, and the governor said, well, if that is the rationale, and you guys believe in that, well, then let's use that rationale for guns, right? So if you're a manufacturer of an illegal ghost gun, anybody can sue them. And, and we'll give you $10,000 as a bounty to try to wrap that person out. It's kind of genius. Uh, so, so, and then it's like, okay, Supreme Court, well, if you want to get rid of that rule, then you got to get rid of the Texas rule too. And then you take them both out. So that is um, the most prominent of a series of gun bills, 12 gun bills that the governor is trying to expedite through uh, the legislature in California, which he wants to have signed within the next month and um, expedite it so it doesn't take effect January 1st, but that it would take effect this summer. Um, and so that's a real push. So right now, because California has the votes, as you said, um, they're doing a big push on both abortion rights and on um, gun control, or I think gun safety is a, probably a better phrase to use than gun control because people oh, yeah. use the word control, which is part of the reason why they buy a gun in the first place. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and trying to set up a, a real contrast with the rest of the country. And when I was at a press conference with Governor Newsom, uh, right after Roe, he was at Planned Parenthood and he was just expressing exasperation at the Democratic Party for not being more on the offensive, which I know is something that the Midas Touch uh, brand is all about going on the offensive and not being reactive, but trying to be proactive on some of this stuff and take the fight uh, to the Republicans. And he's trying to establish himself that way, which may or may not be helpful in a primary um, a couple of years down the road or maybe six years down the road, who knows? Now, I, I think at the end of the day, I think people react to passion and people react to people standing by their principles and actually acting more than anything. So I, I, you know, I, I think he should go all in on it. And that's of course already in addition to the rules that California already has on guns and the protections that California already has for abortion. But I think it's it's a time where Democrats need to go all in on these issues. And what, I, what I'm curious in, in speaking with you is that, you know, we, we spoke about the difference between local news and national news. And I think you also see that difference in politics. You see the difference between local politics and national politics. And before we were speaking about this paralysis of our national politics, but are you seeing that same paralysis at the local level or are local legislators actually able to get stuff done on occasion? Well, I think that, you know, that depends on where you are. Um, in California, there isn't a lot of paralysis uh, because the Democrats have such control uh, and have such huge margins that they're able to do pretty creative, pretty dramatic things on a state level and even on a local level. But I think, you know, what you see in, in both local news and local politics is the more local you get, um, the, the less political it becomes and the more about results it often is. You know, a pothole is not a Republican or a Democratic issue. It just needs to be filled, <laughs> right? I mean, when it comes to like kids' schools, like people just want to have good teachers and like have their kids be safe. 
You know, uh, people need the trash to be picked up on time and not smell bad or for the water to be clean. I mean, all those things. I mean, I know you if you get into it, you could say that those are Republican and Democratic. (laughs) But there and there are aspects of that, I'm sure. But but like on the micro level, like people want things to just work. And and even in, in, in California, where some of us live in Los Angeles, we've had this escalating homelessness problem. And, and an increase in crime, which is actually more of a feeling than it is a statistic. If you actually look at the statistics, crime isn't as up as much as people think that it is, but sometimes feelings matter in politics. Um, and so I think that's starting to sort of change the way some people think and is creating an opening for, in the LA mayor's race, a guy like Rick Caruso, who um, is a billionaire and had been a Republican for much of his life, um, became a Democrat about a month and a half before running for mayor. Um, and he's got a real shot because on the local level, I think people are sort of sick of some of the, what they're seeing directly in front of them and are willing to maybe take a chance on something else um, when he doesn't make the election about Donald Trump. Yeah, and the LA mayoral race has honestly been one of the most fascinating things that I've been following recently. Obviously, it's very close to home for me, but I cannot turn on my TV. I cannot leave my house. I cannot go to my damn mailbox without seeing Rick Caruso's name there. And it's really fascinating because, like you said, you got Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bass, who was on President Biden's shortlist for VP. I mean, a very national uh, Democratic figure going up against this billionaire developer, Rick Caruso, who designed some of like the most famous uh, developments in Los Angeles, like people might know the Grove, the Americana, those are all his properties. Do you think people are gravitating though to like in a race like that? Are they gravitating towards his policies or his views or has he just flooded the zone with his name so much that people just like when they see his name, they go, I saw that's the guy I saw on TV. That's the guy I saw in my mailbox. That's the guy I saw on the billboard. Like he's everywhere. Um, I think it's both. I think people are, 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 you know, I mean, when you spend $25 million uh, to flood the zone, um, he's spending more than anybody in the history of the Los Angeles marriage race. He's spending more than any candidate in the country, in any election, governors, Senate, anything uh, for this primary. That, that makes a difference, right? And, and obviously ads in LA are a lot more expensive than they are in other places, which increases that price tag a little bit. But um but his message also is a pretty good one, right? Which is that LA uh, is has a lot of crime that people are frustrated with. The homelessness is out of control, which it is, uh, and that he and that there's corruption problems, which there are. Um, you can debate on this podcast, which I'm sure you guys would, into the weeds of whether his solutions add up or whether they really make sense or all the rest of it. But the messaging itself is good, and he is not running a partisan message at all, right? Uh, Because he says that those issues are above partisanship and his ads are full of a lot of diverse people, right? Because he has, to his credit, um, spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on philanthropy in LA in a lot of the poorest neighborhoods for years. And I've personally been out there way before he got into uh-huh. politics and worked with him on some of that stuff to his credit and done great work in the process. And so a lot of those people that he helped are now, you know, becoming a part of his ads and are sort of the faces of this. And it is not a bunch of white, rich Westsiders that are on the ads. There are some, I mean, he has Gwyneth Paltrow in his ad doesn't get more white rich than her. Uh, but, but there are, hurts. 
other people too. And, and I think that's, I think it's been an effective message. Now, Karen Bass uh, could end up winning uh, in the end. Who knows? But uh, Caruso's got a real shot. And you interviewed Karen Bass recently. How is she feeling about the state of the race? And what's her message now going into the home stretch? Well, Karen Bass's message is basically that what Caruso is proposing doesn't isn't really the way that the world works. Um, she sees herself as a coalition builder, uh, and which is something that she's done her entire career. She built something called the Community Coalition in South LA um, after the riots. She was a member of the uh, Speaker of the Assembly during the time when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor and we had a lot of financial problems in California. She was the chair of the uh, Congressional Black Caucus. She was the author of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. She's somebody who's reached across the aisle, brings people together, is very well liked by Democrats and Republicans alike. And that that is how you get stuff done. That just denigrating politicians, denigrating the system is not what really accomplishes the goals. What accomplishes the goals is getting a bunch of people in the room, finding what everybody wants and finding a way to make it happen, uh, which is a more complicated message, frankly, politically, yeah. than the system sucks. Let's change it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> your message. Um, but that is how she really believes. And I think she feels uh, that if they can get past June 7th, that she's got a, uh, a real good shot. The way that it works in Los Angeles, which is different than the way that it works in California, which is confusing, uh, is for the California statewide races, June 7th is a primary. The top two people in the race advance no matter what. For the city election and county election in Los Angeles, uh, June 7th um, is actually an election. And if somebody gets 50% plus one, they win. If nobody gets 50% plus one, the top two advance to a runoff. So like Gavin Newsom could get 75% on June 7th and there's still a runoff. If Rick Caruso gets 50% plus one on June 7th, the Man. race is over, which is part of the reason he's spending so much money and trying to make this happen now because they know that I think a lot of the Democratic Party traditional constituencies, traditional interest groups would get behind Karen Bass in the fall spend a lot more money against Rick Caruso, spend a lot of capital, probably people like Barack Obama, other people would probably endorse Karen Bass and Caruso would have a harder time in that, in that thing. Doesn't mean he wouldn't win then, still could, but a harder time, which is part of the reason they're trying to get to June 7th. I think she feels confident about a race in the fall. Um, and I think she feels and expressed that she doesn't think he's gonna get to 50% by June 7th. But I think in the back of her mind, in the back of, other people's minds that 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 there is still a, a possibility, small one, but still a possibility that he does. And then the election is over. Yeah, I think everybody at this point is just shocked that the race was this close to begin with. And I think it should be a warning sign for the Democratic establishment that, hey, maybe don't wait, maybe actually go there and start fighting and get on the offensive right away because they let a guy like Caruso, who is a billionaire Republican until, like you said, basically like a month ago, <laughs> until a month before he decided to run and say that he was a Democrat. They let this guy basically run up the numbers on Karen Bass just by pure name recognition and saying that he's going to shake up the system. And it reminds you, and I'm not comparing them in, in policy or anything, but it does remind you about tr uh, kind of Trump a little 
little bit, how Trump basically came out. Nobody really took him seriously. He was able to flood the airwaves with all this free media and paid media. And he was able to get his name out there and run up the polls, even though people didn't think he was a threat. And I think it's hard not to see that comparison. I think it's interesting, too, when you listen to the ads, he does have a lot of nonpartisan ads, Caruso, but a lot of the ads, at least on the radio that I noticed, is they go, vote Democrat Rick Caruso, Democrat Rick Caruso, Rick Caruso, Democrat, Democrat Rick Caruso, because that is his biggest liability is the fact that he literally just became a Democrat. And once the establishment really starts ramping up their efforts, it's going to be eventually be a problem for him. But at this point, it almost looks like it might be too late. We'll have to to see what happens. Yeah. I mean, Rick Caruso has spent about $30 million in ads and Karen Bass spent (laughs) 600,000. That's a huge differential um, in terms of the the fact that they're crazy. There is an independent expenditure now, uh, which is led by Jeffrey Katzenberg. A lot of people (laughs) know this big Hollywood mogul type Um, and they are running ads Republican Rick Caruso, Republican Rick Caruso, (laughs) Mitch McConnell, Republican Rick Caruso was, uh, you know, indifferent on choice, all of that stuff. Uh, But again, it it came, you know, weeks after he had spent all this other money. And and is it too little too late? We we will see. Uh, We've never had an election like this. We've never had somebody spend this much money. Um, So it's it's tough to tell who's actually going to vote. The thing in California, unlike other parts of the country is every single person gets a ballot. Um, We have same day registration. We have a party that believes in making it easier to vote, not harder. What a novel Uh, concept. So we have (laughs) right now over 80% of Californians are eligible to vote uh, in this upcoming election, which is the highest it's ever been in this country. Um, And, you know, so we'll see how many of them actually get out and do it, but there's like no excuse. I mean, you got, 10 days of open voting where people can go to the polls. You've got uh, a ballot literally mailed to your house, uh, which you have a month plus to fill out. And then there's actually, you know, the election day itself. So, um, you know, there's no excuse. uh, Midas followers, get out there and have your set. There you go. And I think this is what separates you from everybody else. This is what separates you from the pack, man. You are just incredibly well-researched about everything. I mean, I know. I, I, and I say that truly sincerely. When you came on the show today, we really didn't discuss with you the topics that we were going to hit on. And you just have this endless knowledge of, of information at your disposal. And I think it credits and it really shows in your work. And so I want to ask you more about that specifically. Like, what do you believe the roles and responsibilities are of, of journalists and, and news anchors in 2022? You know, to tell the truth, <laughs> to get to a, a Midas touch, uh, you know, uh, branding thing, which is not just a branding thing, I think is who you guys really are. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, look, I think that the challenge in this moment compared to 30 years ago or 50 years ago when, you know, Walter Cronkite's getting 50% of the country to watch his newscast at the same time, is that there is just so much information out there and it, it's overwhelming I think it's hard for a lot of people to process. It's often hard for me to process. And I'm literally a professional who does this shit all day (laughs) long. And it's still sometimes hard for me to tell what's true and what's not. And I think we have a responsibility to act a little bit as a filter, to try to discern through stuff, to do some of the research for you and and to help, you know, create something that uh, people can trust. Ultimately, um, your value as a journalist is do you earn the trust 
of your viewers or your readers or your listeners or whatever it is. Um, and that's based off of years of good work and research and, you know, and, and also owning up if you ever make mistakes, which of course you will, or also saying, I mean, I appreciate your, your compliment, but like, there's a lot I don't know. And being like comfortable enough to say, I don't know. And I see all those books behind you, Alex. I don't buy that one bit. I see all the books. <laughs> They're props. Okay. I'm in Hollywood. Baby. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, it's, it, you know, a lot of it is, is, is being comfortable enough with, with that as, as well and, and having an honest conversation with people. And I don't think there's enough uh, places that do that. Um, and, and, and I think for all of us, it's a challenge. And I look to what you guys do, I think, for inspiration uh, in a lot of ways in how can we communicate to people, especially a younger generation of people mm -hmm. who isn't processing information in the same way uh, that older people are. How can we get to them, get reliable information to them, make them feel a part of the conversation? Because what's challenging now compared to that time, you know, 30, 40 years ago was when everybody was watching the same thing and every generation was watching the same thing. Right now, you have every generation in this country basically getting and processing their news in very different ways. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really, that's never happened before. And it's really hard, I think, you know, for, for me even coming up with a post, it's like I got to do seven versions of the same post for all these days. <laughs> no, I'm just like one guy here. You've got at least there's three of you. Uh, but are, are, are you on TikTok, Alex? I'm not on TikTok. I got to see. I want to do the jiggle jiggle. Yeah. I already have the dance moves on, on our show, the issue. <laughs> like, like it would be a natural thing for TikTok. But I do I actually want to get. At first, I didn't want to, but now I, I do want to start on TikTok because that's where people are. And yeah, so to just ignore that space, I think, is is a miss on my part. Um, I, I was a little con concerned with all the Chinese and everything with that for a while. But and I think at this point, we just got to say, screw it. Yeah, <laughs> are you guys, are you big TikTokers? Oh, absolutely. No, we made a concerted effort when, when we launched Midas, actually, to show up on every platform for all the reasons that you just explained. You know, everybody's getting their news from different places. And so we wanted to be able to, especially that younger voter, knowing such a big effort of ours is that get out to vote, to be on TikTok, to be on Instagram, you know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you name it, we're on it. And I joke about the my money don't jiggle jiggle if uh, I joke about the dances and stuff because it is a big component of TikTok. But I've actually found there to be a real intellectual side of TikTok as well of really brilliant thinkers and journalists and scientists and and people who are just delivering information straight to people. And there's clearly an audience on on TikTok for that. You're not going to make a better stuff. pitch than this to get Elix on TikTok. I think right after this, he's going to set up his account. Yeah, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with a good dance, too. You know, I look, when I, when we I look forward to it. Do you want to go viral right now? We can make it happen right now. Alex. Let's see it. Your dances as we start. Yeah, when, <laughs> we, when, we, when we started our, our show, the, the issue is um, on episode number three, we had Gloria Allred and Lisa Bloom, her daughter, on together. And I started playing because I love music. And I had uh, the Gloria song by Laura Branigan, which is a part of her great documentary, Seeing Allred. And then she just started, she started dancing and moving and grooving and she got up and got me going with her. And then she said to me, I'll come back on your show anytime, Alex, under one condition. Um, we always are going to dance and I'm always going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and so after that, 
uh, we made music and dancing a huge part of our show and, and play it and, and all the rest of it. And it's really fun. And it's such a humanizing aspect of a lot of these really stiff politicians um, who you don't really get to see who they really are, but then you play the music and, and some of them really come to life. Some of them don't, uh, but some of them uh, really do, which is fun. So funny. Alex Michelson, thank you so much for joining us on this Memorial Day episode of the Midas Touch podcast. We appreciate your time. We'll let you go and spend the rest of the day with your family. We appreciate you as always. Thank you very much. And we should give a shout out uh, to, to our troops and, and to all the people um, who've been lost defending this great country and defending the ability to say what we said today as well yes. as we think about them on this Memorial Day. Um, thank you guys for the invite. Uh, keep up the great work. Um, love you guys. You right too. We will be right back after these messages. So great to have Alex Michelson on the pod. As I mentioned before the interview, Alex has been with Midas from day one, someone who I look up to, you know, for yeah. all of the great journalistic work he does out here in LA and, and throughout the country. And so really great to have Alex. I mean, at the, the very show. beginning of Midas Touch, like when we first started catching it, Alex reached out and put us on the show. And I'll always be really grateful for having that platform. We've been back uh, a bunch of times and Alex features some incredible people on his shows in addition to politicians. Our friend of the show, Brian Tyler Cohen, goes on quite often to discuss mm -hmm. issues. He's got a really unique, really great show. And I really speaks to how important local journalists are right here and the one other thing i'd add is my money don't jiggle jiggle it folds like <laughs> it's an authenticity for me for sure all right all right all right all right makes me want to it's dribble, that dribble. Okay, you know okay, okay. riding in my fiat you really gotta see it <laughs> okay I know. we got a wrapping bread on the show yeah, now. We got, yeah we got for me it's really the authenticity of, uh, of me that, that shines through um there are just so many talking heads out there that are just utter clowns and they use their platform to spread misinformation but but he really gives you the news the news the way it should be reported and I'll say this, Jordy, I've watched Alex every night. He's on, he's on, he's on like six times a night. Like yeah. you turn on your TV to Fox LA in Los Angeles. He, you see Alex Michelson. I have no idea what his political beliefs are. Yeah. I, I, I have no, like I, I legitimately have no idea how he would, but like, I have no clue. All I know is that every night he gets up there, he gives the facts, he does it straight and he does a damn good job at it. And I, and I appreciate it before we go on this Memorial day weekend, let you get back to your, uh, your weekend. Ben, what is going on in Georgia and why should everybody be paying attention? Well, everyone knows that in Georgia, based on Trump's uh, amazing phone call with Brad Raffensperger. Perfect phone saying, call. Uh, perfect the perfect phone call, call, folks. Uh, finding him 11,500 blah, blah, blah votes. Um, the extortion uh, embodied in that phone call and the election crimes in that phone call and the election interference embodied in that phone call, you know, is criminal conduct. And fortunately, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis is someone who wants to hold Donald Trump accountable um, and hold anyone accountable who engages in that conduct. So we've previously spoken about a grand jury in Fulton County, a special grand jury being impaneled to investigate and to possibly uh, make a criminal referral with respect to Donald Trump's criminal conduct as it relates to his conduct in Georgia. But now what we also learn is that that probe with that grand jury is really heated up as many as 50 witnesses 
are expected now to be called before this special grand jury criminal investigation into the election interference by Trump. And one of the things that Fannie Willis wanted to wait for, obviously, was the end of the primaries in Georgia so that it wouldn't be hyper politicized. But now that the primaries are over, she's moving uh, expeditiously and methodically towards uh, eventually uh, possibly charging uh, through the grand jury process, Donald Trump with criminal conduct. And I know everyone racketeering, loves- right? That's what she's, she's trying to build a racketeering case here. Amongst amongst other claims, you know, racketeering would be uh, one of the uh, criminal counts. But if people want to know, oh, I've heard this before, you know, is Donald, is there really going to be, you know, uh, criminal conduct? Is there really going to be criminal charges uh, with respect to this Georgia probe? I would just say this, you know, it's impossible to ever predict anything, but I think there's a high likelihood we have the audio on tape. We know what he said. Um, we also know about the alternative slate of electors. And all of that paints a picture about what was going on in Georgia. So the work of the January 6th committee, the work of the DOJ and those other cases are also going to be used in Georgia. Why was Donald Trump making this call to Brad Raffensperger here? Because they wanted to have Trump electors on, uh, on January 6th, um, as opposed to the actual electors on January 6th. And so I genuinely think criminal charges are going yeah. to be brought against Trump here. And let me just say, you know, we've spoken to on this show, we've talked to people like Representative Jamie Raskin, and we've heard from a lot of people who often say a similar thing. They say that Trump is very good at evading the law. Trump is very good at distancing himself from criminal activity. He doesn't use email. He doesn't text. He doesn't do any of that shit. But in this case, Trump was on the phone call. Trump made the phone call. The phone call was recorded. We Mm -hmm. have his criminal acts on recording. So you could be damn sure that if there is any case where Trump is going to be indicted, this is number one, in my opinion. This is number one where Trump should be nervous. And I think that Trump is incredibly nervous. Fonnie Willis is an absolute professional and Donald Trump knows it. And that's why you're starting to see the panicked statements coming out of Trump world on his truth social platform, trying to disparage her, trying to say that this is the radical left trying to get him. I think this is the one scenario where there is no ambiguity and it is Trump's voice on tape. And in the words of Rachel Maddow, I will say, watch this space. Definitely watch this space. want to thank everybody for listening to or watching this episode of the Midas Touch podcast on Memorial Day, uh, the Memorial Day episode. Again, our thoughts, our sentiments. Today's a day where we need to reflect on the troops who have sacrificed and made the ultimate sacrifice for this country, fighting for democracy. And the way we can honor the troops is really not just with our thoughts and prayers, but with our actions. And what we try to do every day on Midas Touch is lead with our actions uh, and not just preach these things, but to actually live by them each and every day. And that's why we're so grateful for all of you in the Midas Mighty who have done the same, who have committed yourselves to this great fight for democracy, this existential fight against fascism, this fight for decency, this fight for what the United States of America should be, not what the GQP wants to turn it into. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Ben Brett and Jordy signing off on Memorial Day. Shout out to the Midas Mighty!